Section three of Henry the Second by Louis Francis Saltzman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter three: The Welsh Wars, Part One. The Welsh, who had been brought into at least nominal subjection by the strong hand of Henry the First, were not slow to avail themselves of England's weakness under Stephen to regain their liberty. Unfortunately the chief result of the removal of foreign control was the increase of those internal disputes which had always formed so large a part of the nation's history prince ward with prince brother against brother and cousin against cousin treachery was met with treachery and in the end the inevitable appeal of a disappointed claimant for foreign assistance against his successful rival brought an english army into welsh soil once more Owain Gwynedd, king of North Wales, had exiled his brother Cadwallader and seized his possessions, and it was on the pretext of restoring Cadwallader that Henry assembled his forces at Chester and prepared for the invasion of Wales in the summer of 1157. The task was formidable alike from the nature of the country and the inhabitants. Wales was divided into three parts, North Wales or Venedosia, south wales or demetia and powys but save that the lance was the weapon of the northern welsh and the bow of the southern the divisions were arbitrary and artificial and unconnected with any differences in the character of the population with the exception of the brabantine mercenaries a race apart a tribe of professional ishmaelites ready to turn their hands against any man for pay no nation was so thoroughly permeated by the martial spirit as the welsh with the english and normans war was the business of the gentry but throughout wales the young men of all classes gentle and peasant alike devoted their leisure to the practice of military exercises and strove to perfect themselves in the art of war possessing a country whose woods and mountains intersected by torrents and marshy valleys were admirably adapted for the ambuscade and other tricks of guerrilla warfare the welsh had cultivated those qualities which enabled them to make best use of these natural advantages simple in their requirements for food or dress they were hardy active and endowed with wonderful powers of endurance of defensive armour they made practically no use yet they did not hesitate to encounter any foe however well equipped their first attack delivered to an accompaniment of yells and braying trumpets was furious but as is inevitable when light-armed troops engage with heavy if it did not prove immediately successful they soon broke and fled always ready however to resume the fight if opportunity offered they did not disdain to strengthen their position with fortifications and the whole land bristled with castles footnote many of these were probably merely positions of advantage strengthened with ditch and wooden stockade and footnote hardly a year passing without record of the erection capture recapture or destruction of one or more castles in the course of the incessant wars waged either between local chieftains or with the norman barons of the marches yet it was emphatically in the strategical use which they made of the natural advantages of the country that the welsh were preeminent. it is possible that the straightforward pitched battle between troops contending stubbornly under the open sky tends to promote the honourable traditions of chivalry 
while the ambush surprise and night attack foster treachery and deceit certain it is that the welsh were notorious amongst their contemporaries as liars and perjurers men to whom the most solemn oaths were not binding and their norman neighbours the lord's marchers were not slow to follow their example so that the history of the border warfare is constantly strained with treachery and broken oaths the corollary to taffy was a welshman that taffy was a thief was already recognised as an axiom at the time of the doomsday survey when the customs of the herefordshire welsh contained provisions for correcting this reprehensible propensity yet in spite of this tendency to enrich themselves at the expense of their neighbours the welsh were open-handed and generous none need beg for a meal nor need the wayfarer fear to lack a resting-place hospitality was not so much a duty as a commonplace of life amongst this people and exercised without hesitation the food was simple for though orgies of gluttony and drunkenness were only too common after a successful plundering raid yet the habitual excess prevalent in england was here unknown but this simplicity was more than atoned for by the charms of female society and the delights of music in music the welsh surpassed even the irish in every house a harp was to be found and it is noteworthy that they shared with the men of yorkshire the peculiarity of singing not in unison but in parts in their rhythmical chanted songs the nation's exceptional powers of rhetoric found their highest form of expression and their bards were held in such honour that in eleven fifty seven when morgan son of king owain gwyneth was murdered it is expressly noted that with him was slain gurgant apris the best poet thus with music and eloquent conversation were passed the restful hours of the day the remainder of which would be devoted to military exercise hunting the tending of flocks and herds or more rarely agriculture for which the poor soil and the inclinations of the people were alike unsuited they were thus perilously dependent upon england for much of their food and therefore liable to be starved into surrender in the event of war the antagonism existing between the peoples of england and wales found some echo in the relations between the two branches of the church the welsh church possessing a far longer continuous history than that of england was less completely under the influence of rome and retained many primitive customs which were strange and even abhorrent to the more orthodox their clergy continued to marry with the result that many benefices had become hereditary descending from father to son like secular property but if the marriage of the clergy was a primitive condition no longer canonical the marriage customs of the laity were still more shocking to the orthodox being in many cases not merely uncanonical but clearly survivals from pagan times indefensible on any grounds except those of crude common sense the english church having control of the four sees of st david's clandaf bangor and st asaph should have been able to execute the necessary reforms but unfortunately norman prejudice forbade the appointment of a welshman to any post of authority in wales and the seas were consequently occupied by foreigners who for the most part could not speak the language of their flocks and only too frequently used their power to increase their slender revenues at the expense of their clergy 
despised by the norman clergy as corrupt and by the nobles as barbarous it is possible that the welsh appeared to henry less formidable opponents than they really were moreover he disregarded the advice of the lords of the marches whose whole lives were spent in fighting their welsh neighbours and determined to conduct his expedition on the most approved continental lines owain had entrenched himself at basingwork and henry accordingly advanced along the coast for some distance and then meditating a flanking movement led a detachment of his forces through the woods of consult this gave the welsh the opportunity for which they had been waiting and no sooner were the normans entangled in the woods than the forces under owain's sons david and cunan fell upon them inflicting heavy losses caught at a disadvantage the invaders were thrown into confusion two of their leaders eustace fitzjohn and robert de courcy were slain and a cry was raised that the king had been killed panic ensued and it was afterwards said that henry of wessex the constable of england had thrown down the royal standard and fled if the constable really displayed cowardice on this occasion the fact must have been hushed up for nothing is heard of it for six years until in eleven sixty three robert de montfort made it the subject of a formal accusation such an accusation could have only one outcome and accordingly a duel was fought between the two parties at reading in the king's presence when henry of essex rashly abandoning a successful defence for the offensive was defeated and left for dead on the ground but being nursed back to life by the monks of reading joined their community and spent the remainder of his days in their abbey it is noteworthy that the challenger robert de montfort was a connection of his opponents and not improbably a rival claimant to the constableship which henry had inherited through the heiress of hugh de montfort on the whole it would seem more probable that robert should have made his accusation as a taunt based on some flying rumour and that the result of the duel was unjust then that king henry should have condoned the constable's cowardice and allowed him to continue in honour at his court End of section three